Welcome. You're listening to sermons and talks from Providence Church in Brisbane. We believe that God speaks to us through His Word, the Bible. So we pray that as you listen, you'll be encouraged and challenged to love Jesus and live for Him. For more information about Providence Church, please visit our website, www.providencechurch.com.au. Zechariah 2, and you can find it on page 662 of our church Bibles. Then I looked up, and there before me was a man with a measuring line in his hand. I asked, where are you going? He answered me, to measure Jerusalem to find out how wide and how long it is. While the angel who was speaking to me was leaving, another angel came to meet him and said to him, run, tell that young man, Jerusalem will be a city without walls because of the great number of people and animals in it. And I myself will be a wall of fire around it, declares the Lord, and I will be its glory within. Come, come, flee from the land of the north, declares the Lord, for I have scattered you to the four winds of heaven, declares the Lord. Come, Zion, escape you who live in daughter Babylon, for this is what the Lord Almighty says. After the glorious one has sent me against the nations that have plundered you, for whoever touches you touches the apple of his eye, I will surely raise my hand against them so that their slaves will plunder them. Then you will know that the Lord Almighty has sent me. Shout and be glad, daughter Zion, for I am coming, and I will live among you, declares the Lord. Many nations will be joined with my Lord in that day and will become my people. I will live among you, and you will know that the Lord Almighty has sent me to you. The Lord will inherit Judah as his portion in the Holy Land and will again choose Jerusalem. Be still before the Lord, all mankind, because he has roused himself from his holy dwelling. Father, I want to thank you so much for your word. We do want to thank you, Lord, that it is your word, that it is the overflow of your heart to us. And Lord, as you reveal yourself to us this morning, uh, Lord, we praise you uh, that we can know you more. And we pray that you would reveal yourself to us in a way that um, doesn't leave us the same that changes us, that deepens our affections for you and uh, strengthens our trust in you. In your name we pray. Amen. I'm taking you to an interesting part of the Bible, a part of the Bible we don't always look at that um, regularly and it may be a part of uh, Israelite history that we don't look at all that regularly. We're, We're looking at a part of Israelite history where the people have been in captivity and now they've been returned to their land. Um, So that's where we're at and um, that's what we're going to look at today in this second chapter of Zechariah. But first, I want you to imagine that from the time you were a very little uh, kid, uh, you'd heard stunning stories from your mother about your great uncle Errol's house where she spent her holidays as a child. It was a massive mansion situated on the bank of a crystal clear river where you could swim and catch fish. In this mansion, there were countless rooms all dressed out opulently um, all over the house, so many nook and crannies to explore. There was even a library full of really old ancient books and maps. This is a house that was kind of the stuff of storybook land. It is like a Narnia house. 
and your mother always reflected joyously on her summers spent uh, in that magical wonderland of Uncle Errol's house. Well, imagine that you now, as an adult, uh, a lawyer arrives at your door and produces a document to, to say that your great uncle Errol has died and left you his house. You have inherited uh, Uncle Errol's dream house. Imagine the amazement, the wonder, the anticipation as you pack your car, grab a few of your friends and head off along the long road trip to the house that you had heard so much about. As you drive, you try to explain to your friends all the wonderful memories that your mum had relayed to you and now you get to experience them all as well. You get to take possession of that wonderful, magical wonderland. Well, imagine you turn into the driveway of Uncle Errol's house only to find that all of the gardens are either dead or overgrown with weeds and thorny vines. The house is run down, parts of the roof are caving in, a section has been burnt to a shell. The river had stopped flowing years ago and the stench of a stagnant quagmire and rotting fish flesh pierces the back of your throat. Inside what is left of the house are cobwebs everywhere, evidence that squatters had been living there, cigarette butts and syringes, and the library is now just a nest for rats and birds uh, with chewed up bits of book all over the floor. Everything that had brought your mother so much joy, everything that you had been anticipating, everything you'd been hoping for, was soured by the crushing reality that Uncle Errol's dream house lay in ruins. The Jews who had grown up in exile in Babylon would have been told over and over and over again from a very young age that this was not their home. They were exiles living in a strange land. They were not at home in this pagan empire, that their home was the promised land of Canaan, the land that flowed with milk and honey, the land that God had chosen for their forefather Abraham, the land where God had chosen to dwell in his temple in the midst of his people. And they would have been told over and over again that God would not leave them languishing in exile forever, that the words of the prophet Jeremiah would come to fruition. Jeremiah chapter 29, verses 10 and 11. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are complete for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Their God would lead them out of captivity and restore them to the peace and the prosperity of the promised land. And as the years of exile rode on, the anticipation of this return would have been growing steadily in the hearts of the people. And then... In the year 539 BC, Cyrus the Great, the leader of the Persian Empire, defeated the Babylonians and became the ruler of the whole region. 
And one year later, he issued a decree which is recorded for us in Ezra chapter 1 verse 2. Thus says Cyrus, the king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. In other words, the exiles were to go home. They were to finally go home to their homeland and rebuild their temple. The faithfulness of their God had been revealed through the decree of a pagan king. Imagine the journey for those first returnees. The expectation, the anticipation, the sense of hope. We are going to that promised land. We are going to the home of our forefathers. We are going to the land that flows with milk and honey. But what do they find when they get there? A city that lay in ruins. A temple that had been burnt to the ground. Hostility from those who were living in the land at the time and the scorn of all of the nations around them. Like Uncle Errol's dream house, the homeland that they'd heard so much about, the wondrous and awesome memories of their parents and grandparents had been reduced to a crumbling mess. Well, it's into this disappointment, frustration and disillusionment that the prophet Zechariah is called to speak He called to speak the word of the Lord to a people who had so many questions lingering over their heads. Where is our God? What happened to his promises? Why does the reality of faith look so vastly different from my expectation? Was it really worth coming back to the promised land? Is it even worth following Yahweh anymore? In the early part of the book of Zechariah, he is given a long night of visions. One vision after the other. They just move quickly from one to the next where God reveals his heart for his people and his land. Visions that uncover the reality that there is more going on than the people can see with their eyes. More often than not, this is the role of vision in the prophet's It's to tell people that not everything is as it seems to you. There is something more at work. There is something bigger happening. And so Zechariah has a long night of visions. Things around him might look like they're crumbling on the surface, but it did not mean that God was absent. And it'll be vital for us this morning as we wrestle through this particular vision, because it may just be that some of us here today have significant doubts about choosing to follow Jesus. We sing, I have decided to follow Jesus, no turning back. But in maybe that's feeling a little bit hollow because maybe we've reached a point where we're starting to wish maybe we did turn back. We see the lives of our friends who have chosen to walk away from Jesus and they seem to be carefree and wealthy, like they are experiencing the best of the world and everything it has to offer. We maybe have just about had a gut full of all the critiques of our faith, the questions we can't answer, the answers that we feel awkward about giving. 
we can't help but notice the ever-growing tide of culture turning against Christianity, with everyone's from politicians to celebrities to influencers taking pot shots at our faith. We might even look around at the state of the church and feel like it is a crumbling Jerusalem, dashed by past corruptions, false teaching, dwindling attendance. Maybe we are starting to question why we've got in uh, to all of this in the first place, why we decided to follow Jesus. Well, this morning in Zechariah's vision, we're going to see two truths that give us the assurance that we need to trust that despite what things might look like, following Jesus is the right decision and the only decision. Let's look at chapter 2 and let's look at verse 1. And I lifted my eyes and saw, and behold, a man with a measuring line in his hand. This follows a pattern in this long night of visions where Zechariah's eyes are caused to move from one vision to the next. And he doesn't get much time to contemplate what is happening. But in this case, Zechariah sees something that would have caused him great alarm. A man with a measuring line in his hand. In the past, God had used the image of a measuring line to symbolize a nation being marked out for destruction. Just listen, Isaiah chapter 28. And I will make justice the line, and righteousness the plumb line, and hail will sweep away the refuge of lies, and the waters will overwhelm their shelter. 2 Kings chapter 21. And I will stretch out over Jerusalem the measuring line of Samaria, and the plumb line of the house of Ahab, and I will wipe out Jerusalem as one wipes a dish, wiping it and turning it upside down. When God had wanted to bring judgment and destruction on a place, he had spread a measuring line out over it. And so Zechariah's heart would have gone into his mouth as he asks this measuring man, where are you going? Almost expecting the man to say, Well, I'm here to mark out Jerusalem for its final destruction. But instead the man replies, to measure Jerusalem, to see what is its width and what is its length. Now this is something you only do when things are worth measuring. Like a fisherman wanting to know the length of the huge barramundi he just caught so that he can brag, like the javelin thrower wanting to know the length of that perfect throw to see if she's broken the record, like a mountain climber wanting to know how high the mountain he scaled was so that he can chalk up another achievement. When we measure things to see how big they are, we are generally doing it because they are worth measuring. The city had yet to recover from its Babylonian destruction. Significant parts of it still lay in ruins. The walls were non-existent. Jerusalem lay broken and exposed. Anyone looking in from the outside has concluded that it is a mess. And yet here, in Zechariah's God-given vision, he sees a man coming to measure out her dimensions, to determine how big this city was. 
Rather than marking off the city for destruction, the measuring man was seeking to take in the full magnitude of the city, like a surveyor measuring out the perfect plot of land to build upon. The measuring man only has a line out because he has a really good feeling about Jerusalem. And it's pretty amazing that he would think like this considering what the Jerusalem, uh, the returnees had endured um, and what was a broken and vulnerable city and yet there is a measuring man who is trying to take in its splendour. Imagine what is going through Zechariah's mind. Everything he could see with his natural eyes was telling him Jerusalem is a write-off, a broken mess of despair, infighting and hopelessness. But here, with eyes given to him by the Spirit of God, he saw that Jerusalem was so magnificent that it was worthy of measurement. It was something that people wanted to take in, something that evoked interest and amazement, and things were only going to get better. Um, As the man walks past Zechariah and declares that he's going to measure the width and the length of the city, God commissions Zechariah to catch up to the man with a message. And behold, the angel who talked with me came forward, and another angel came forward to meet him and said to him, Run, say to that young man, Jerusalem shall be inhabited as villages without walls, because of the magnitude of of the multitude of people and livestock in it. In other words, catch up to that measuring man and tell him that he need not go to the trouble of pulling out his line because Jerusalem is going to be so big that extended well beyond where normal walls can reach. There will be so many people and animals living in her that it will be impossible to fence her in. Her prosperity would overflow to the point where it can't be contained. And furthermore, God declares in verse 5, And I will be a wall of fire all around, declares the Lord. And I will be the glory in her midst. Not only will Jerusalem be so big that physical walls would not be able to contain her, but God promises to be her walls, that he himself will be her protection and her boundaries of expansion, and he will be the glory in her midst. In other words, God is blessing and building Jerusalem surrounding and protecting Jerusalem so that people might get to experience the joy of living in the presence of his glory. The immeasurable size of the city is not so Israel can brag about her prosperity, but so Israel and all the surrounding nations can see the splendor of his glory. God looks at Jerusalem and says, this is where I am going to build. To all the people sitting in the city lamenting the trials and tribulations that they had endured this last 20 years, and to all the people back in Persia who were looking on from afar and considering themselves lucky to have remained in the comfort of their exile, God is saying, I have chosen Jerusalem. I have chosen to build here. I have chosen to extend her boundaries. I have chosen to be her walls, her protection, 
and I have chosen to be in her midst as the glory of this city. In other words, he is saying, here in Jerusalem is where you need to be. I am building here and you need to be where I'm building. To the returnees struggling with the brokenness of the land, he is saying, don't look to what you see before you right now. Look instead to the glorious future I am building here. You need to stay here where I am building. To exiles still in Persia, hesitant to return, he is saying, don't listen to all the bad press about coming back to the land. Listen to the glorious future that I am building here. You need to return to where I am building. Zechariah's third vision here screams out to the people, be where I am building. And this is exactly what we need to know today. When we look at the state of Christianity today, when we feel less than excited about what church might have to offer, when maybe we feel like Jesus is irrelevant and has nothing to offer in my life, we have to stop and ask ourselves, where is God building? Because despite what things might look like, if God is building there, nothing can stand in the way of it. Nothing can contain it and it will be glorious. And in the scriptures, it tells us where God is building. Matthew 16, when Peter confesses that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, Jesus declares, on this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And in Ephesians chapter 2, we're told, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles on prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you are also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. God has chosen Jesus to be the cornerstone of his building work in this world and he has chosen no other cornerstone. And upon Jesus, he is building a boundless church with his glory at the very centre where people from every tribe and tongue can be brought together and built in to the household of God, a dwelling place for God by His Spirit. Jesus is where God is building. The church of Jesus Christ is what God is building. And so this is where we need to be. The church of Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of God's promise to his people through Zechariah. And no matter what things look like now, no matter how small and irrelevant the church might seem, no matter how quickly others might be deserting the church, this is where we need to be. The first truth that assures us that we have made the right decision in following Jesus is that Jesus is where God is building. Jesus is the foundation stone he has chosen to build upon and he has chosen 
no other. Standing on the foundation stone of Christ means standing right at the very heart of God's plan for this world, right in the place where he will ultimately bless, right in the only place that has a glorious and eternal future. The first truth that assures us that we have made the right decision in following Jesus is that Jesus is at the very centre of God's building work in this world. Having seen this vision of the measuring man and proclaimed the glorious truth that God will build Jerusalem into an immeasurably glorious city, the word of the Lord is now heard in this vision. And it's a word primarily to those who have remained in exile and haven't made the journey back to the promised land yet. Maybe they had heard the reports, everything is in ruins. Everything is a disaster. Stay back in Persia where things are great. And this is what the word of the Lord says in verse 6. Up, up, flee from the land of the north, declares the Lord. For I have spread you abroad, abroad as the four winds of the heaven, declares the Lord. Up, escape to Zion, you who dwell with the daughter of Babylon. For thus said the Lord of hosts, after his glory sent me to the nations who plundered you. For he who touches you touches the apple of his eye. Behold, I will shake my hand over them. They shall become plunder for those who serve them. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me. If coming to Jerusalem is coming to the place where God is building, then remaining in Persia is to remain in the place where God's judgment is about to fall. So God calls his people to flee from the place where he will execute his judgment. Up, up, come, come, get out of there, flee to Jerusalem, flee to Zion. Yes, God had sent his people to Babylon to punish them for their rebellion, but this does not mean he wants them to stay there forever. Despite the fact that God had used Babylon and now Persia as the means by which he would accomplish his plan, it doesn't mean that he would let these nations continue in their rebellion against him, continue in their hatred and mistreatment of God's people. These nations would suffer under the just judgment of God. So to remain bound to these nations was to dig your heels into the place that would ultimately suffer judgment. God is zealous for his glory. He is zealous for his people. And here we see his passion to bring judgment against those who abused, oppressed and sought to destroy his people. The language here is exceedingly passionate. For he who touches you touches the apple of his eye. Behold, I will shake my hand over them, and they shall become plunder for those who serve them. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me. God's people are the apple of his eye, they are the focus of his affection. 
the specially chosen people that he loves. Babylon and Persia had laid claim to the people of God. And this evoked in God a righteous anger and a jealousy that would see him shake his hand over them, laying them to waste, causing them to become plunder, plunder for those who they once oppressed. It's never easy to read passages in the Bible that are like this. It always feels a little bit awkward. Maybe we've come to know our God through Jesus Christ and we know the glorious beauty of His gracious forgiveness. The truth that He loved us while we were still His enemies. And to think of God as one who brings vengeance is difficult to stomach. But the reality is, we cannot shy away from the fact that to continually reject God is to reject the beauty of His gracious forgiveness. It's to reject His enemy-loving kindness. Our God is not unrighteous in His judgments. He is not quick to anger. He does not leave people without a witness to the love they could have if they simply repented and returned to Him. In many ways, the central message of the book of Zechariah is found in chapter 1, verse 3. Return to me and I will return to you. Return to me and I will return to you. There is gracious forgiveness available. There is mercy available. If you would repent, if you would return to me, you would have all of me. I would hold nothing back. And so no matter how awkward or uncomfortable it is for us to reflect on, we must open our eyes to the reality of God's righteous judgment. But it seems like many exiles living in Persia at this time had looked back at the impoverished, broken and vulnerable state of the promised land and thought the grass looked a little bit greener in Persia. So instead of returning home and toughing it out, they chose to remain. Whatever their reason, God is very clear now. The time has come to get out. The time has come to move. The time has come to return to me so that I might return to you. It doesn't matter how green the grass looks where you are right now. It doesn't matter how brown and crispy it looks where I'm telling you to go. The reality is that is where I'm building. So please go there. And the green grass is where I'm going to judge. It's where my wrath will fall. So up, up, get away, flee to Zion. There is a sense of urgency here. Listen to the language of verse 6. Up, up, flee from the land of the north. Verse 7, up, escape to Zion. God does not want his people playing with fire. He does not want them coming entrenched in these foreign lands. He does not want their hearts becoming settled and comfortable being away from their true home. If the vision of the measuring man is supposed to tell us that Jerusalem is where God is building, then this word from the Lord is supposed to tell them that Persia, the lands of exile, was where God was going to demolish. The grass was not really greener in exile. 
It might have looked green on the surface, but it would soon be scorched. And this is where we need to be reminded that Christianity is not just salvation to a new life in Christ. It is salvation from something. It is salvation from a coming judgment. Because when we forget that, when we forget that it is all too easy for us to look over the fence at the world, to observe the lives of those friends and family who have rejected or abandoned Christ and think they have it so good. To become discontent with what we have in Christ, to let our hearts be drawn into the hopes and dreams of this world. And maybe some of us are in that place right now this morning right in the place where we're starting to feel like the world has more to offer than the church, that there is so much more captivating and beautiful things to pursue out there other than Jesus. Well, if the last few years of living in this world have told you anything, surely it's told you this world is broken. This world is broken. Floods, fires, injustices, wars, plagues, financial hardship, corruption, and these things are not new. The world has experienced this brokenness since the moment uh, Adam and Eve shattered God's perfection with their rebellion. If the events of the last few years have taught us anything, surely they have taught us that this world is not a great place to put your hope. Finding your hope in this world is fraught with danger. It is broken it will continue to break and ultimately it will melt away altogether when the Lord returns to make all things new. To find your hope in this world is to rest all of your dreams on something that is broken now and destined for ultimate failure and destruction. And so God would say to you this morning, up, up. Flee from this world. Up, up, escape to Jesus. It's easy to see the judgment of God and feel awkward about it. But the reality is that he doesn't actually want to condemn you. He cries to you with an impassioned plea, escape to Jesus, come to Jesus, put your hope and your trust in in him build your life on the foundation that will never fail the second truth that assures us that we have made the right decision in following jesus is that any other decision leaves us in a place of judgment and that is not what god wants for you he does not want you to languish in a place of judgment god longs to see his people spared from judgment so provide, he, he can provide salvation to all who would call upon his name. So the picture is vivid. Here is Jerusalem. Here is where I am building. My people flee to where I am building. Flee to where I am building because where I am building will stand for eternity. Where I am building will be overflowing with prosperity. Where I am building will be filled with my glory. Anywhere else is destined for destruction. 
Here is Jesus. He is my foundation stone. He is the one on whom I will build everything in this world. I will build my church. I will build you into my church to be my people. And I will fill you with my glory by the power of the Spirit. You are my people. And I will keep you safe. Everywhere else is destined for destruction. Put your feet on the foundation stone of Christ and you will not only experience the joy and the blessing and, and, and the beauty and the glory that He has to offer, but you will be spared from the destruction that is to come. The second truth that assures us we've made the right decision in following Jesus is that any other decision leaves us in a place of judgment. The final call of this third vision of Zechariah is on the surface a strange one. Standing in a city of brokenness, God calls his people to sing a song of joy. Verse 10, sing and rejoice, O daughter of Zion. For behold, I come and I will dwell in your midst, declares the Lord. And many nations shall join themselves to the Lord in that day and shall be my people, and I will dwell in your midst, and you shall know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you, and the Lord will inherit Judah as his portion in the Holy Land, and will again choose Jerusalem. We generally don't sing songs of joy in times of brokenness. We sing songs of joy when there are joyous things happening, when we fall in love, when our team wins some amazing victory, when the war is over. But here God calls his people to sing songs of joy in the midst of their brokenness. Not singing because of how things currently are in that moment, but singing of joy because of how things will eventually be. God will come to them. God will restore them to glory. God will draw all nations to his kingdom. God will make Jerusalem everything that is good and beautiful and glorious. They should sing in the certain hope of what God can do for them and what God will do for them. And this is why we sing songs of joy as a church. It doesn't matter that Christianity seems to be flailing. It doesn't matter that we have critics on every side. It doesn't matter that the world is exceedingly broken. It doesn't even matter if your life is shattered and broken at this very moment. Because there are things that God has promised that nothing in this world can take away. There is a future hope a certain reality that transcends our present brokenness. We sing songs as, of joy as a church, not always because things are joyous right now in our existence, but because of how things will be. You can come to church, I've done it, feeling like rubbish, feeling like trash, feeling like this week has just been a write-off and a disaster, and maybe feeling like, you know, completely and utterly crushed. 
and you see a brother or a sister sing. You hear the words of that song. You hear them singing with genuine joy in their heart. And even though in your stubbornness you don't want to sing, you hear it and you're reminded of something. That God is bigger than the week you've just had. That God is bigger than the present moment you find yourself in. That His plan transcends it all. And that person ministering to you in song, that those people sitting alongside you in the, in the chairs, they are singing not because of how amazing their lives are right now or how amazing your life is right now. The song of joy is there because of what will be, of what will be for certain. And so I get this picture in my mind of Zechariah leading the people in a song as they stand in rubble. Leading a people who are standing in a city of ruin, leading them in a song of joy. A song of joy about their God who would come for them, who would save them, who would restore them, who would fill them with His glory, who would make them a mighty nation that transcends the entire globe. And I see a picture of us as the world around us gets darker, as things move further and further away from Christianity in our world, that perhaps the church looks like a bit of a ruin and a rubble. And every Sunday, you drive past a church and you hear them sing. You hear them sing because Christianity is like prime in Australia right now and doing amazing stuff. Not necessarily. They sing because of what will be. That is who we are as God's people. We are the people who sing in ruins, not because of how things are, but because of how things will be. I hope, we're, are we finishing with a song? Yeah, I hope so. Because that's what I want you to do this morning. I want you to know that if you have put your feet on the foundation stone of Christ, you have every reason to sing a song of joy. You will be spared the destruction of this world and you will have an eternity filled with His glory. I'm going to pray and then we'll sing a song of joy together. Heavenly Father, I want to thank you so much for Jesus. I want to thank you that in a world that is broken, a world that is crumbling, a world that is falling to bits, that you have provided a foundation that can withstand any storm, any earthquake, any disaster that might befall this world that you have given us the foundation stone of Jesus Christ. And Lord, I pray that we might know what it is to anchor our feet on him and be held safe for all eternity. And that our hearts might be filled with the joy of what will be and it might fill our hearts with a song of joy even this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.